If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 11. I think it's page 865, if you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. Uh, Before we get started, I want to show you something that you haven't seen in a couple of months. Uh, How many of you remember this? And so it was about seven or eight weeks ago that we uh, first uh, revealed the number one. Uh, We tried to trick you a little bit as we announced our We Love Our Church pledges uh, by telling you that uh, the pledge was $565,000 when in fact it was $1,565,000 and what a great day of celebration that was. Uh, Well, I want us to uh, bring the number one back out today and there's a reason. Uh, You, because of your generosity and because of the kindness of the Lord, Now, it is not $1 million pledged, but at the 10-week mark, it is $1 million given. Isn't that amazing? You know, nobody could have expected, I I don't think anybody could have expected the pledge to be as high as it was, and certainly we would not have expected to have received 65% or to go over the $1 million mark at the 10-week mark. And uh, because of your generosity and because, as I said, the kindness of the Lord, uh, tremendous things are happening. So I want to put this in perspective. Let's just take a moment and spike the football, if we will, and, and just, uh, j- just marvel at this. So when we began this campaign, uh, some said, while they were supportive, some said there's no way our church will commit that much money to a renovation campaign. But you did it, Right? And so the number came through $1.56 million, and I don't think anybody expected it to be that great. That was a wonderful commitment. But then some said, well, that's a commitment, that's not cash. Pastor, there's a difference between money pledged and money given. You can't spend a commitment. Well, listen, now at the 10-week mark, 65%, $1,000,000, there's no question that the faithfulness of our people will prove true and we will reach the amount that has been pledged. But then, this gets better. Hold, Hold on a moment. Doesn't this choir look good? Now, don't let this fool you, though. When they're wearing the robes, they just have PJs on underneath, and so they don't look like this every Sunday. But uh, you look nice. You look nice today. So some suggested, well, people will give to this, but they will give just out of their regular giving. And so we love our church. Giving will go up, but regular giving will go down. Well, let me tell you the story of that. On the very same Sunday that we hit $1 million in we love our church receipts, we also hit $1 million in general offering receipts, the earliest we have ever done that in a calendar year, and we are meeting the largest budget that we've ever had. And so while we love our church receipts are coming in at record pace, also our general budget receipts are coming in at record pace just because of your generosity and faithfulness and the kindness of the Lord. And I think it'd just be appropriate for us to stop and pray and thank the Lord Uh, for this great blessing that he has given to us. Can we do that together? Father, we are thankful and we're, we're careful to know, we're careful to recount the fact that none of this would be possible without just your hand moving in our lives. 
It, it started with the blessings that you gave to us that allowed us to be faithful and generous. And then, Father, what you have put in our hearts that we could stand with this church uh, to see these tremendous things take place. And we thank you for this and praise you for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we hope soon uh, to have some more details about the project. And I know uh, there are many questions. Everybody wants to know where we're going. Uh, our teams are working very hard. Uh, they're um, working with architects. They're getting all of the feasibility studies done. And hopefully very soon we will have uh, some information that we can bring to you and say, here are the next steps. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to that. So today we're in Matthew chapter 11. We come to the last week in our series on the family, first aid for the family. And we come to what I think is probably the most important message, the one that will leave the biggest impact uh, on your lives. Uh, people say to pastors all the time that there are just some verses in the Bible that they struggle to believe. And I hear people comment on that uh, often. People will say, uh, Pastor, I have a hard time believing uh, some of the verses in the book of Jonah, uh, that Jonah could have been swallowed by a great fish. I hear people say that they have a, a great deal of difficulty believing the verses in Exodus that, that talk about the Red Sea being divided. Or I, I hear people even go to the New Testament and say it's hard to believe that Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. But I want you to know that those to me don't seem like hard verses. If God is real and he is the creator of the universe, then none of those are hard feats at all. If God can do all of that, if God can create life, then certainly God could make a fish to swallow a man, divide a sea, or bring somebody back to life. Those to me are not hard verses to believe. But I'll share with you one that I do struggle with. I believe God's word is absolutely true and inerrant and there's no error, there's nothing wrong, but there is a verse that I struggle with and I want us to read it together. And so it's in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, or you can see it with me on the screen this morning, but let's look at these words together. Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is talking about those who come to Jesus will live a life characterized by peace and quiet strength. But the reason I struggle with that is because I love Christ and I've come to Christ but oftentimes my life is not characterized by peace or, or quiet strength. Sometimes my life is characterized by stress and frustration and exhaustion and busyness and worry and sometimes even fear. So how could this verse be true? It says that if I will come to Jesus that he will give rest to my soul but so many times I just feel overwhelmed by busyness. And I think many of you do as well. Well, I think the answer to the question, the reason why this is not more of a reality to us is because we have no margin in our lives. Have you heard that word before? Have you heard it used in that, in that fashion? We, we don't have any margin in our lives. Margin is the space between how we live 
and the limits that we have in life. Margin is that space between the way that we're conducting ourselves and the absolute hard limits that God has placed in our lives. And so some of us are living with, with no margin. And that's a dangerous thing. We, we see the importance of margin everywhere we look. You can see it even in your Bible this morning. If you notice that the text of your Bible does not run all the way out to the edge of the page. Have you ever wondered that? You pick up a book and sometimes there will be a one inch margin in that book. Doesn't it seem foolish? They could print those books much cheaper if they just made the text run all the way to the edge of the page. There wouldn't have to be near as many pages in that book. But why do they put that space? And by the way, we call that space what? Margin. Why do they put that in the book? Well, if you ever go and pick up some cheap paperback book that's printed with no margin, you'll quickly see the importance of margin. It's hard to read a page when the text goes all the way to the limit, when it goes all the way to the end. Margin is important. We can see it in something as simple as a book. We can see it on the roadways. In the state of Texas, highways are required to be 12 feet wide. Did you know that? But a truck, the limit on the width of a truck in the state of Texas is eight feet, six inches. A 16-wheeler can only be eight feet, six inches wide. It seems like we're wasting a lot of road space. That's an extra three and a half feet on the side of the truck. Most of our cars are only six feet wide. There's room for two cars in most lanes. And so why do they put all of that extra on there? Well, it's not because they just want to have bigger roads. It's because somebody has figured out that that margin is helpful. Just imagine what your insurance rates would be if there were no margin on the roads. It's an, it's an important part of driving. But in life, sometimes we have just reduced our margin uh, to zero. Uh, we don't have margin in our time. We are scheduled to the max. Uh, we don't have margin in our finances. We spend every penny that comes in. And oftentimes we don't even have margin in our morality. We are living and, and, and running just right up against the limits to morality that God has, uh, that has given to, to us. So why do we have such little margin? Well, in our lives, we have just embrace this philosophy that we have to live maxed out. Maxed out, stressed out, exhausted. Uh, you hear people say that they're running a rat's race. Think about that expression. Doesn't that seem odd, a rat's race? But we know exactly what that is, right? You, you, you know what it is, even though it's hard to, to, to define the, the words and make them make sense. It, it's a rat's race because you're living a rat's race. We say that we're living in a pressure cooker, which is another very odd thing to say. But we know that that's true because we know what it's like to have, have pressure in life. We put our kids in every activity. We, we, we put them on every sports team. We join every club. We accept every invitation. We are always in a hurry, always running behind. We drive too fast. We eat out too much. There is no margin in most of our lives. We are absolutely pushed to the limit. Have you ever sat beside a kid who was blowing up a balloon? And he's right there next to you and he's blowing up the balloon and you're watching him out of the corner of your eye. But once he's got enough air in that balloon that it, is, that it has reached its limit, he continues to blow, and what do you do? 
you feel your stress go up with every little bit of air he puts in that balloon. And as you see it stretching against its limits and he's continuing to blow, it narrows your focus. You're you're not focused on anything now but that balloon, right? People are talking to you. You don't even know what they're saying. You're just focused on that balloon waiting for it to explode. Well, that's how many of us are living life. And we just keep adding things and adding things. And so the stress is going up and our focus is narrowing. We attempt to pack more life into our days But in fact, we're missing out on the real and abundant life that God wants us to live. And that's why Jesus says, come to me, those of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's not how God wants us to live. God does not want us to push everything to the limit, yet that's how we live in this world. So what went wrong? Why is life so busy? Why is it so hard? Why are families, especially young families, just absolutely pushed to the max? How has this happened? Life, you know, is easier now than it was 50 years ago, or at least it ought to be, certainly easier than it was 200 years ago. I doubt any of you had to go to the creek this morning to fetch water for the family. I mean, life ought to be easier, but it's not, and why is that? I think it's because we're scared. I think we're scared that if we don't push to the limits, that our kids will miss out on something, that we will miss out on something, that we will fall behind some way. But you know, when we, when we embrace that fear, we never really finish the thought. We're afraid that our kids are going to miss out on something, but we never say what the something is. Miss out on what? We say if we don't push it to the limit that we're going to fall behind. Well, fall behind what? Fall behind whom? We need to finish those sentences because I'm afraid that we have have pushed ourselves to the limit because we're fearful of something that we can't even define. I tell you, men struggle with this maybe even more than women. And that may not be fair, but I hear more men say this than I hear women say this. A man will often say, if I don't do as much as I can possibly do, then I will never make it. I'll be poor. I won't be accepted. I won't measure up. I won't achieve enough stuff. But I think in our effort to do that, uh, we have given up margin and our family is paying the price and we're failing to accomplish the most important and the most significant things. Life happens in the margins. Life happens in the unscheduled times. I read this week an interview of a hospice nurse. We have some hospice nurses in our church and and you perhaps would would share the same testimony. But this hospice nurse, Bronnie Ware, uh, wrote that as she has had an opportunity to counsel with uh, hundreds of patients in their last hours or their last days of life, uh, that they have shared two common regrets. And I'll share one of those with you this morning. One of those regrets is that they wish they hadn't worked so hard. She says this, and and I quote her, this came from every male patient that I have ever nursed. They miss their children's youth and their partner's companionship. Women also spoke of this regret, but as most were from an older generation, many female patients had not been the breadwinners, 
But all the men I nursed deeply regretted spending so much of their lives on the treadmill of work existence. What a terrible, terrible regret, an avoidable regret. Well, that's from a secular point of view. Well, what about from a, from a spiritual point of view? You might be thinking, Pastor, I thought the Bible said that I should burn brightly for the Lord all my days. Well, you should. But there's a difference between burning brightly and burning out. If you look at the life of Jesus, uh, he lived about 30 years. About three of those were focused on ministry. And in no time in those three years do you ever find Jesus in a hurry. He was never behind. He, he was never stressed out, uh, not for time purposes anyway. He was never rushing. Jesus lived a different life than we live. So what I want to do this morning is to share with you four biblical ways to restore margin in our lives. And with each one of these, I want to give you a passage of scripture and the passage of scripture will do two things. It'll show us how to restore margin, but it'll also help us to see how this is how God wants us to live. God wants us to live with margin in our lives. And we'll see that in all four of the passages that, that I'll point out this morning. So the first step to restoring margin is we must pursue God first. We must pursue God first. Physicians tell us that anxiety is one of the top problems causing medical issues uh, with people today. I, I read this week, just doing a little bit of research in The Telegraph, an article with this title. And the title really explains the whole article. How anxiety became a modern epidemic greater than depression. And so the article talks about uh, how depression for many years was, the, was one of the greatest health concerns in the world. But now, according to the authors of this article, anxiety and worry have become even worse problems than, than depression, and they are epidemics. Uh, so I, I turned over to WebMD, which is probably not the best place to get medical advice, but I, I just, I Googled this. What does anxiety or worry lead to medically? And there was a long list, longer than I have time to share with you here, but I'll just read a few. Overeating and weight gain, premature coronary artery disease, heart attacks, digestive disorders, suppressed immune system, and memory loss, okay? Now, how many, raise your hand if that describes you. No, we won't do that. <laughs> but let's talk about a spiritual perspective. Pastors, I know more about this than I know about uh, doctors, but pastors would suggest that anxiety or worry leads to a loss of joy. It leads to at-risk relationships and unwise decisions. But what did Jesus say about this? Now, look with me on the screen. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said in verse 31, so don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Now we're going to stop there a minute. We're going to read another verse, but, but let's make sure we understand this. He says, don't worry about things 
That's what Gentiles do. Now, what does he mean, Gentiles? Well, we know a Gentile is someone who is not a Jew, but it really means more than that here. It says, don't worry like a Gentile worries because you know that your God cares about you. So a Gentile here is, is, is in a sense, the person who maybe believes in God, but doesn't believe in a God that cares for them. But what he says is your God, the God that you believe in, he knows what you're going through. He cares for you. Why are you worrying about things when you have that kind of heavenly father? You, you know, it would, it would be an insult to me if I overheard one of my kids telling one of you, well, you know, I'm really worried about whether or not we're going to have electricity at our house next week. I'm really worried whether or not we're going to have enough food to eat the rest of the day. Now, if I heard them say that to you, I'm going to be very upset. You know, who, who do they, I mean, I'm their dad. They don't need to be worrying about whether we're going to have food next week. They don't need to be worrying about whether or not we can keep the electricity on. They need to trust their dad. They don't think their dad can keep the electricity on. So now maybe this dad could struggle with that sometimes, but our heavenly father will never struggle. And so he says, we shouldn't worry. That's what you would do if you didn't have a dad. That's what you would do if you didn't have a heavenly father. If you didn't have a heavenly father that cared about you, then you ought to worry. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? But since you have a heavenly father who cares about you, why are you worrying? But then he gives us in the next verse, uh, this very important counsel. He says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. What, what he says is don't worry, don't have anxiety. That's what, that's what pushes our schedule to the max. Quit worrying about things and, and trust. And the way to get there is to put the pursuit of God first. How do we put the pursuit of God first? That means we've got to put the pursuit of the world second. I trust you, Lord, that you're going to provide for me. I trust that you're going to provide for my finances and for my, for, for my career and for my ministry and for, I'm just, I trust you and I'm going to pursue you first. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue you in my personal devotion time. I'm going to pursue you by being faithful in church. I'm going to pursue you by, by giving of my time that's so short already. I'm going to give it away to serve you. I'm going to go on a mission trip. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue you first. And I'm going to let all these other things take care of themselves. Now, we generally do it the other way around. I'm going to take care of me, and then I'm going to trust God just to somehow work out the spiritual stuff at the end of the day. But see, that's the recipe for losing our margin. That's the recipe for worry and stress. If you are taking care of you, then you're going to worry that you can't take care of you. But if you'll just pursue God and trust God to take care of you, your anxiety will go down, your trust will go up, and you'll be able to have margin in your life. How do we have margin? Well, we just put God first. God does not want us, we see clearly from these verses, God does not want us to push ourselves so much to the limit that, that we are worrying all the time if we can get it done, if we can pay the bills, if we can work it out, if we have enough energy. No, God wants us to pursue him first. Pursue him first. Well, the second thing we need to do is to take an inventory of our lives. Take an inventory of our lives. You know, living with margin, living with some extra is, is hard. 
Uh, few people learn to do this. And in fact, I wrote down a list of things I struggled with this week. I'm embarrassed now to read them, so I won't. Uh, but I wrote down the, the ways I struggled with margin this week and the, and, and the things that uh, just really haunted me this week because my life is pushed too much to the limit. Uh, so how do we accomplish this? How, how do we figure out uh, how to navigate our way through life and have some margin? That's, that's tough because the world telling me to push, 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 go, go, go. Well, let me tell you where the wisdom comes from. By sharing with you one verse out of Psalm 90. Now, Psalm 90 is an interesting psalm. It's written by Moses. A lot of people don't know that Moses wrote one of the 150 psalms. Moses, as you probably know, was one of the greatest leaders in the Bible, uh, faced uh, the strongest uh, political uh, power and the strongest military power and came away victorious uh, because he depended upon the Lord. Then he led uh, two million refugees out of Egypt and to the edge of the promised land. Moses was a great leader. But Moses ran into some difficulty during that trip to the promised land. And so he wrote this psalm and he, he gave us a nugget of wisdom right in the middle of it. Now Moses is going through difficulty, like many of us go through difficulty. And here's what he said, Psalm 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Now, we're going to leave that verse up for a moment because I want you to see that this is just a logical verse. Teach us to number our days. That means we need to take an inventory of our lives. We need to figure out what's going on in our lives. We need to take an inventory. And if we do that, he says something will happen in our lives. What does he say will happen? Teach us to number our days, which is to take an inventory, so that we will develop wisdom in our hearts. If you want wisdom to help you lead a life with margin, then the first thing you need to do is to number your days, is to take an inventory of your life. And when you look at that inventory, you will be able to see clearly, God will add wisdom to your life and you'll be able to see how, how to live with margin. You know, just like we would tell somebody, you would tell somebody who was struggling with their finances to do what? If somebody came to you and said, I can't pay my bills, I, I, I can't afford anything, I don't know what to do, I'm just at the end of my rope, what would you say? Well, the first thing you need to do is to take an inventory. You need to figure out what you've got coming in and you, got, and you need to figure out what you've got going out. And, and, and once you take that inventory, then we're going to be able to see more clearly what it is that you need to do. Maybe you need to cancel something. Maybe you need to sell something. Maybe you need to make more money and get another job. But, but you don't know that until first you take an inventory. The inventory is what gives you the wisdom. Now, if you will take an inventory of your time, then God will add the wisdom you need to live with margin. So here's what I would suggest. Just take a piece of paper, turn it sideways, and then make, say, five columns, five columns. And in the first three or four columns, you write down right at the top, what are the things that are most important to you? What are the things that you want to accomplish in this life? You might put something about your marriage. You might put something about the quality of the relationship with your children. You might put some, a goal for your child. You, you, you might put some spiritual goals. But write down no more than three or four of the things that you desire to accomplish in this life. Right at the top of, the, of those columns. One in each column. And then on the last column, just write 
other. Really, you ought to write junk, but I'm trying to be more polite, more gentle with you. So write other in the last column. So you got that? You got the most important things in your life, and then you've got other. And then write down everything that takes time in your life in one of those columns. Think about what's, what's using up all of your time. And here's what you're going to discover. You're, you're not going to have a whole lot of things in those first three or four columns, but you're going to have a whole bunch of things in the junk column. And once you do that, once you take an inventory of your life, you're going to have the wisdom to know, hey, we need to take something out so that we can add something later. If you're going to live with margin, if I'm going to live with margin, we must inventory our lives. Uh, number three, don't harvest the margins. Now, that sounds uh, archaic, perhaps mystical, uh, but let me explain. I used to read every time management book uh, that came on the market. Uh, I can tell you uh, that I stopped this about four years ago when I finally got a little bit of wisdom from the Lord. Uh, but I have read every time management book written in English from 1900 to 2013. If it's printed, I own it. Uh, I would loan it to you, but I'm going to tell you why in a moment you don't need to read it. Uh, I have read it at least one time. They came out. I read them immediately as they came out. There's one new one that comes out every single month by somebody. Don't read those books. It will ruin you. The point of all of those strategies is to squeeze 100% out of every hour of your day. The, the point of those books is to schedule every hour to the max, to completely eliminate margin, and to run your life, the RPMs of your life, in the red zone all day, every day. And I'll tell you what will happen if you'll do that. Number one, it'll put you in the hospital. I speak from experience. I speak from experience on all of these things. Number two, it'll rob you of joy that you won't ever get back. Number three, it will steal life away from your relationships. And number four, it'll ultimately reduce your true productivity. You won't accomplish more, you'll accomplish less. But what if we decided, instead of living life at 110%, what if we chose to live life at 85%? Now, I know that's anathema to, to our culture. If you're a businessman today, you're thinking, I can't run at 85%. I've got to run. I've got to push, push, push. If you're a mom and you have children, you're thinking, there's no way 85% would get it done. But just... Just hang with me a moment. What if we decided that 85% was going to be our limit and we were going to leave a margin every day, every week, every year, 85% were our limit. I think what we would discover is that there's more joy, there's more family, there's more goals accomplished, there's more productivity in 85% than there ever was in 110. Now let me show this to you in, in scripture. Uh, these are some obscure verses, but uh, you'll recognize the principle. Leviticus 19. Uh, you may never, never read that chapter before, uh, but listen to these two verses, 9 and 10. 
this is God's giving commandments to the, to the Israelites. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you're not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. And there's more to the verse, but let me stop there. What he says is don't, your business model doesn't need to be that you're going to get every grain out of that field. It doesn't need to be that you're going to get every grape off those vines. Don't push it to the limit. Pull back, leave some. And, and, and I'm sure that, that, these, that these farmers were thinking, you, you don't know what you're talking about, Lord. No, for me to operate a successful business, I've got to go all the way to the edges. And God says, no, you can't go to the edges. You can't harvest to the margins. You've got to leave some. Let other people have some. And then he says this, for I am the Lord your God. What he says is, I mean, you, you think you're in charge of your success you think you're in charge of, of the fruitfulness of your enterprise? You think you're in charge of building a house and children that are godly and successful and love the Lord? You're not in charge. I, the Lord, am in charge. What you need to do is to recognize that I'm the one who will put my finger on the scales. I'm the one who will accomplish real things in your life. You, you, you need to understand it's not so much about you as it is about me. You need to trust me. He says something very similar in Deuteronomy 24, 19. He says, when you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. He says, if when you're getting the harvest in, you drop a bag of grain, he said, just leave it. Just leave it. And I'm sure all the business farmers in Israel say, no, we, we, you don't understand. We've got to have that. We've got we to gotta make our, our, our goals, and we've got to have a certain amount. But he, he, he closes it by saying this, leave it so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hand. What he says is your success is not up to you, it's up to the Lord. And, and, and you need to trust God in some of this. Quit pushing things to the limit because you think it depends upon you. Give God space to work. You know, my time is limited, so I need to limit my time. And if we would Start trusting God instead of pushing to the limits. I think we would accomplish more and we would enjoy more. I put a, um, a chart in your worship bulletin. We can show this to you on the screen. And so I would encourage you just to go home and fill this out. And, and so the, the plus there, that's some things that, that you believe the Lord's leading you to add to your life. What are some things you aren't doing that you ought to do? I mean, there may be some things you need to add. Are, are you spending time in God's word every day? Are you... You sacrificing for the Lord, or are you are you you you're stretching yourself and, and and sharing the gospel and going on mission trips? Maybe there's some things you need to add. But listen, if you add something, then what do you need to do? You need to subtract something, okay? And you probably ought to be subtracting more than you're adding. So so you spend time with the Lord. What what do you need to add? What do you need to subtract? And then on the next section, what do you need to spend more time on? What what, what needs to have a greater focus? in your life, and then what needs to have a, less, a lesser focus in your life? It's okay to play golf. It's okay for your kids to be on the t-ball team, of course. Those are great things. 
But we need to understand that there are some things that are valuable and they need to have a greater focus. And there are some things that are less value and they need to have a, a lesser focus. Don't harvest all the way through the margins. And then the final command is just take a day off. If there was ever a time to amen a pastor, here it is. Let's, let's practice. Take a day off. Amen. Now you're familiar with uh, Exodus 20 is the 10 commandments and you're familiar with commandment number four, but let me read the passage to you. I think it bears reading. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You are to labor six days, six days. This is not an, ex- I'm not, I'm not telling you you can be lazy. If you're hearing that in this sermon, you've, you've heard the wrong thing. He says, you are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock. Uh, That means not even your cat and dog can work on the Sabbath. He says, or the resident alien who is within your city gates for the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that's in them in six days. And then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Now we'll preach on the Sabbath when one day and we'll talk about all of the intricacies of this, but, but let me tell you what it is by first of all telling you what it's not. This is not a way to judge others. New Testament makes that very clear. If you're ever sitting around thinking that somebody else is messing up their Sabbath, uh, you are guilty of sin. This isn't for you to hold anybody else responsible for something. Secondly, this is not a prohibition against eating out or playing softball on Sundays. Okay, you missed the point. And we'll explain that later, perhaps. And this is not just something that we should do. Listen, this is important. This is not just something we do when we're exhausted. Uh, too, too many people think, well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have a day off, but I really don't need one right now. I've got plenty of energy. I, I'm, I'm going through a season of life right now where I just need to give it my all, Pastor. Uh, right now, I just need to work through this. There's no opportunity. But, but, but see, this is not about take a day off if you need it. You notice he, he says that God took a day off. God created the, the universe in six days and he took a day off. And it wasn't because God was tired. It wasn't because God was saying, shoo, I don't think I could go another day. God was not exhausted. He did not break a sweat creating the universe. But he took a day off to give us a model, to, give it, to demonstrate something to us. We need to take a day off. Let me tell you what this is. That's what it's not. Let me tell you what it is. This is an expression of trust. Now, I know that you're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. This message is primarily to me this morning, and I appreciate you coming and watching. (laughs) We're thinking, that won't work in my life. You don't know what my kids have going on, or I'm a farmer, or my work responsibilities are different, and, and there will be a time when that will be more convenient for me but it just, I couldn't make it. Well, you've got to understand that you don't have anything on the people who heard this to start with. These were farmers. These were farmers in a day when there was no refrigeration. These people were living at a time when, when, when they felt like if they didn't work seven days a week, their family wouldn't eat, that they would die if they didn't work. But God said, no, listen, you can trust me. And this became for the Israelites not, 
Not, not just some, some law so that God could give them a law. This became a test. Are you listening? This Sabbath became a test of whether or not the people really trusted God. I mean, all the people around them were working seven days a week. All the other nations, the Philistines and, the, and, and on all those, they're working seven days a week. And, and it was a foolish idea to take a day off. But God said, I want you to be different. I want you to be people who trust that God in heaven will take care of you. And you know, I don't think that that has changed at all. Whether you take a day off every week, this is not a function of how busy you are, how important you are, the kind of work you're in, or the stage of life your kids are in. We think it has something to do with that. It doesn't. This has to do with one thing. Do I trust God? Do I trust God to provide, or do I think it is all up to me? I'm trying to pastor this church. Do I trust God to pastor this church? Or I think it is all up to me. You're trying to accomplish some things. Do you believe it's up to you? Or do you believe God is trustworthy? You answer that question by whether or not you take a day off. Have you ever thought about how a boat floats? Pastors, as you know, from listening to me preach for a year, think about weird things. But um, have you ever stood, maybe you've gone on a cruise and you stand, you get off the boat at some exotic location and then you stand on the, on the pier next to the boat and you look up and some of these cruise ships, we were on one that was 10 stories tall out of the water. And you're standing there and you look up and it, I mean, here's a skyscraper and it's floating and you wonder how could something so big, I mean, there are elevators and restaurants and all way up in the air. How, do, how does that float? Well, but we know, if, if you remember any high school physics at all, uh, that, that the, um, the weight of the water that that boat displaces, as long as that is more than the weight of the boat, it'll float. That's why a battleship made of steel will float, but a little pebble will sink. It's because that battleship or that cruise ship has margin. You understand? I mean, maybe that cruise ship weighs, I have no idea, a thousand tons, but the water that it displaces is 1,500 tons. And so because there's a cushion there, because there's, there's margin there, it floats. The same thing is true for us. God's given me 168 hours. God's given me a fixed amount of energy. God's given me a fixed amount of faults that I can have. God's, God's limited us. And, and we can float in this life as long as we have not pressed all the way to the limits. But if we press to the limits like a pebble, we will sink. But if we will leave a margin and trust the Lord, then we'll have the buoyancy we need. So I want to go back to the very first verse that we read. Uh, Matthew chapter 11. Can you show that to us on the screens? While you're looking at that verse, let me read another one that I, I failed to mention. But leave Matthew 11 on the screen. 
I just thought this was a, a, a really put things in perspective. Listen to Ecclesiastes 4, 6. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with, uh, make sure I read this correctly. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Better just to get one handful and have margin, the Bible says, than to pursue the wind and not have margin. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 11 again. Look what Jesus says. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. God says, Jesus says, if you have a relationship with me, this at the end of the day is going to equal rest. Your life will be characterized by rest. He goes on to say, take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What could he possibly mean? Well, too many times we think that it all depends upon us. That's true for Christians, pushing, pushing, pushing instead of trusting, trusting, trusting. But I think for many people, that's what keeps them from ever really becoming a child of God. I think there are people who come to church every week and that's just a part of their pushing. They're trying their best to earn their way. I'm coming to church, I'm trying to live a better life, I'm pushing harder. And, and their life is not characterized by rest, it's not characterized by peace, it is characterized by guilt and stress and striving and pushing and pushing and pushing. And so what Jesus says is, it's, it's not about you. For you to have eternal life, you've gotta to come to me. What, what, what the Lord is saying, Jesus is saying, I've already done all of the work. What do you have to do to be saved? Jesus already done it. He died on the cross. He lived a sinless life for you. He died for your sins. He's done all the work. And for you to have a relationship with God means that you come to the place in your life where you say, there's nothing left for me to do. This is not about me keeping every rule. This is not about me striving to be better and better and better. As important as those things are, we're, we're, not, we're not saying those aren't important, but, but to be accepted by God is not about me pushing and pushing and pushing and somehow, somehow I've got to impress God with my life. No, to become a child of God is to say, I recognize that I can just come to Jesus and it is done. You know the difference between having people over and being a guest at somebody else's house. We love to have people over. Uh, Y'all can come over today. Just come on over, Don will have something uh, by the end of the day. I don't know what she does during the second worship, she whips something up. But, you know, we love to have people come over, but when people come over, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's push, push, push. You gotta get the, you know, the kitchen's gotta be clean, and this has gotta be cooked, and this has gotta be put up, and somebody's gotta take the trash out, and somebody's gotta, you know, make sure the lid's down on the commode. I mean, I mean there you go, know, there's, a, there's a list of a thousand things. If somebody's coming over, it's push, 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 push. It's a whole different thing when you're just, when you're the guest, right? You know, somebody invites us over, I don't, I don't, it, it never crosses my mind that they had to clean the house before I came. I don't know, I don't care. It never crossed my mind that there might have been stress and, and uh, anxiety and, you know, push, push, push to get ready for my family to come over. Now, we just show up. We take all that for granted. So that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, there's not a whole list of things you got to do. 
and then you come to me. He said, no, I've already done it. I've already cleaned it up. I've already taken care of it. Just come to me and rest. And so for many of us, this message today is about, as a Christian, I need to start trusting God. I need to quit acting like it all depends upon me. And that's what I'm doing when I'm pushing, pushing, pushing and never taking a day off. And, and I'm, I'm acting like, like I'm God. And so I need to learn that. But for m- many people here, I'm afraid. This is about recognizing that you've been trying to impress God and earn your way all this time. And maybe you've been pretty good at it, but it's not been enough. When God never asked you to do that, your only hope is just to show up and, let, and respond to the invitation when Jesus says, come and I will, I will it, tired and burdened, just come and I will give you rest. With your head bowed and eyes closed, I, you know, this has been a whole series on the family and, and, and I think the, one of the best ways we can bless our families, whatever it looks like, whether there's one of us or 10 of us in our home is just to learn this lesson of margin. I pray father that you will help us to recognize that we can trust you, that we'll not act like the Gentiles, but we will trust you. And Father, I pray that people here today who have been striving and working and stressing and guilting out because they can't measure up, that they will hear the clarion call of Jesus just to come and find rest because Jesus has done all that needs to be done. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, as we respond to the Lord.